Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome to the 10% True Podcast. Quick message from me before you get stuck in. This podcast is free, so there's no advertising. I don't monetize it on YouTube. You don't have to sit through any annoying adverts, and I don't even ask for any money through Patreon. But if you could, in exchange for that, drop me a like, leave a comment, share my content, and if you're listening to the podcast version, maybe leave a review of the channel, that would be hugely appreciated. It will help me to grow my audience, which is really what I'm trying to achieve. Anyway, with that, I'll let you get back to listening. Enjoy. Paul, welcome back to uh, Tim Century. It's great to see you on the podcast again. Great to be here again. Thank you. Uh, we, we talked a couple of months ago, and, and my viewers will be aware, of course, of your um, participation in that um, Wild Weasel interview that I did with you and, and some of the other guys that you had served with in Southeast Asia. So as far as um, we're concerned, it's sort of 1971, 1972, you, you've finished your tour flying uh, F-105s in the Wild Weasel mission. Um, the purpose of today's uh, conversation principally is really to talk about the YF-23, but but I didn't want to just go straight from talking about um, Southeast Asia to the YF-23 and not really fill in the gaps in between. So I was wondering if if maybe as a starting point, you could talk a little bit about what happened when you came back from Southeast Asia, um, where your Air Force career took you and and why it took you in, in that direction. Yeah, well, I we brought all the airplanes back from Southeast Asia, the Wild Weasel airplanes, and wound up at George Air Force Base. And uh, so I instructed there for uh, about two years, uh, and bringing some new guys into the program. And also they were transitioning over the F-4G at that time, slowly. So um, that, was, that was my post-Vietnam assignment. I'd always had a desire to be a test pilot. And... Uh, so I, I went ahead and put in the paperwork that was required to uh, go to Edwards Air Force Base for the test pilot school. And uh, in uh, late in December of 74, I managed to uh, eject from an F-105. And um, interesting backstory to that is I, I love aviation history. And uh, so I jumped out of this F-105 only to come to find out after I jumped out of it and destroyed it that it was scheduled to go to the Air Force Museum to uh, recognize Leo Thorsness, who got the Medal of Honor flying out in the F-105. And uh, I destroyed a piece of history in the process. Uh, it, the, the, it re, the reason it required ejection from the airplane was the engine quit. 
uh, failed the tower shaft bearing inside the engine and the engine and all the supporting equipment, uh, flight controls, everything just froze up. So it was time to leave the airplane. But I met Leo Thorsness just a few years back before he passed away. And I did a mea culpa to him and said, I'm sorry I destroyed your airplane. He, he laughed it off and said, yeah, I understood. Uh, he used to call the Air Force Museum once a month and make sure that they were going to receive his airplane. Yes, sir, we're going to have your airplane here. And then I come along and blow the whole thing out of the water. Um, but uh, I did apply for test pilot school and uh, I got an assignment in 1975 uh, to go there. And so I did uh, a one year in hell and uh, got my, uh, my pilot's license, test pilot license, if you will. And uh, went to work uh, on base, uh, did a several small programs, uh, the harm missile, uh, initial harm missile workup uh, on the F-4. Um, I, I spent most of my time uh, with the F-5s, Northrop and the F-5s, and that led me to the future uh, associations with the company. So uh, that, that lasted through 75, 76. Uh, and um, the last assignment I had was I got a uh, position to Texas River Naval Air Station to teach at the Navy Test Pilot School. So I did that till 1980 and that wound up my Air Force career. 1980, I go to work for Northrop, did 12 years with Northrop. Uh, got uh, out of that, uh, after we'll talk about the WAF-23, I went to work for Lockheed for 14 years. So I got 12 years in the Air Force, 12 years of Northrop, and 14 years of Lockheed. I cannot hold down a job. Um, but that's that's kind of a quick thumbnail. Uh, after uh, Lockheed, I, I finished up Lockheed with the F-35, but I was no longer flying. I was the manager of flight test for that program and then retired in 2006. So that's a quick thumbnail. That's, that's quite a career. That's that's impressive. So, but why why test pilot? Then? What was what was the allure? Well, I I guess that's in my DNA. I um, I enjoy engineering. I got a degree in aeronautical and astronautical engineering from the Ohio State University, and I just enjoy that aspect of what makes things work, and and, uh, and especially going out in the discipline of flying a test program and bringing back data and crunching the data, working with engineers at all appealed to me. It doesn't appeal to every pilot, for sure. But that was, uh, that was my desire, was to become a test pilot. Was, was the experience of going through uh, test pilot school what you thought it would be? I think you just described it as a year of hell. <laughs> uh, I, I say that not, not too much exaggerating, but uh, it, is the, it is the toughest uh, education that I have ever been through mainly because it was a combination of classroom work uh, and, and fairly rigorous classroom work and then flying. Um, the, uh, the, the school now actually grants a master's degree for that one year. Uh, and uh, they didn't at the time that we went through, they had not uh, achieved that status, but it's a, it is very rigorous. It's time demanding. Uh, you, you never stop and uh, sleep seems to be in the way of everything. So uh, it's, it's a rigorous program. It's, um, you meet some great people and uh, you have some fond memories of it. But uh, yeah, the old saying is, um, would you go back through test pilot school if I gave you um, $5? And a guy says, uh, or says, 
no, I wouldn't do that. She says, would you go through test pilot school if they gave you a million dollars? He said, no, I, I, I wouldn't do that. Why are you asking? He said, oh, I just wanted to find out how stupid you were. What, what were the challenges for you then going through that program? You, you talked about the rigorous classroom activity. Um, was the flying very different? Was that, a diff- was that a set of challenges that you had to overcome as well? Yeah, the flying is uh, is different. It's uh, it, but it's more than flying. It's the preparation for the flight. It's flying the flight. It's gathering the data. It's reducing the data and reporting the data. So those are the the steps you go through. So one flight is not just let's go fly for an hour. There's much more to it, um, and it it is very demanding in terms of precision that you fly. Uh, you you must learn to control the airplane to one knot plus or minus a knot of speed and altitude within 10 feet. And those sort of precision kinds of flying that's required to get just data, engineering data that you need. So it's not at all like combat flying. Uh, it's a very disciplined form of flying. Do you do, um, if it's not a silly question then, as, as a test pilot, do you sort of lose the, um, I don't know, the sort of team focus in the aviation sense, in the flying sense? Because I guess as, a, as an operational guy, you're always going to be a part of a two-ship or a four-ship. Uh, you're always going to be flying with somebody else. Um, and and I guess from from what I understand, at least, you know, the uh, a test pilot type source, he would be your wingman would actually be on the ground. They would be the guys running the telemetry um, or you know monitoring what the airplane was doing or what the weapons were doing that you were you were testing. Um, so, do you end up sort of with a single ship sort of mentality around your, your flying? Not at all. It's it's exactly the opposite of that. Um, I felt more of a team kinship with the engineers and the people helping execute the program even more so than I did in combat flying formation with a wingman, as you, as you pointed out. Um, no, the, uh, the training that the team goes through, it's, it's like, uh, it's very much like a, a slightly toned down version of a space shuttle launch or Apollo launch. It's, you have a mission control room, you have engineers in there, they've got data strips they're looking at, and uh, you're trying to fly precisely to their specifications. When an emergency occurs, you need their help to, control the airplane, figure out what's gone wrong, get it back on the ground. So uh, we train, I, for the YF-23, I trained for nine months with about 30 uh, engineers simulating that first flight and simulating every possible emergency that could come up. And you get to a point in that relationship after that long a time that you're, you're mentally and, and bonded to these other people and you operate as a team. And it's, it's, that's much more powerful team type arrangement than I found in the in the combat arena how about the culture then if you you're sort of bonding with those individuals and and we talked about this on when we talked about the wild weasel or you guys talked about that when we, when you talked about the wild weasel experience you know going to the bar a lot of learning done in the bar you know the, the sort of um you know the, the building of that camaraderie did you have the same sort of culture then um, outside of the cockpit or outside of the mission um, with those those engineers no, um, and that, that's an excellent uh, observation. Uh, no, it is it's more of a professional type of relationship. Uh, you would go out occasionally, but it was not like the, the combat environment you, we discussed with the, uh, the weasels. So that part is distinctly different. Yet the bonding is, is deeper, which is kind of an unusual thing. So bonding doesn't have to occur over a beer. It can occur with the interactions. 
in the normal normal business environment. I suppose risk is uh, um, an everyday activity, especially fast jet back in those days. I guess it's sort of much safer now, still risky, still risky business, but much safer now than it was. Um, but was there a sense then in the work that you were doing as a test pilot that it was more dangerous than maybe going out and flying combat or you know, flying a, continu- a continuity or a continu- continuation saucy stateside? No, I, I I can't say that it one was more dangerous than the other. They, there are there are more unknowns from the airplane side of the picture in flight test. There are less airplane related issues with the airplane that has been fielded and operational. Your unknowns there in the combat arena are the enemy. What's he going to do? How's he going to respond? Uh, and what's my chances of getting through this alive? In the flight test world, you have a lot of unknowns. You're taking an airplane up for the first time. Yes, a lot of ground testing has been done. A lot of simulation has been done. But for the first time, you expose the airplane to the real world. And invariably, things happen. And uh, hopefully, you can control them. Uh, you know, sometimes you can't. I don't know whether you've ever seen the picture, famous video of the F-14's first flight coming into a land and they lose the flight controls and they both punch out on short final. Uh, that was a test program, an unexpected event. So, and uh, Challenger accident with space shuttle uh, is an unexpected event. And so that that's the kind of things you face versus combat types of threats or risks. Are there, we'll, we'll talk about the wire 23s you know, in, in time in this in this conversation, but are there particular sorties or particular test programs then that you did as a as an Air Force test pilot that really stand out in your mind for being challenging or you know frightening you or you know putting you in a position where you were really tested? No, I I, I don't have anything that stands out. I've had some experiences where the unexpected happened, but. Uh, but uh, nothing that I would say scared me. I, and in that sense, that's interesting. That's another good observation you've made. In, in combat, there's a fear that the enemy's going to kill you. Somebody's going to kill you. You don't have that overt sense of threat in a test program. And in fact, you're, you're trained and you train others to make sure that if you have an emergency, this is what we're going to do. So the failure may come as a surprise. Oops. But then you hopefully said, yeah, that's just like we saw in the simulator. Here's what we do to recover this airplane. So it's a, it's a little more controlled and, and structured, I guess, than, than combat, which is a bunch of human beings trying to kill each other. That, I mean, that, for me, that's a fascinating um, point then, the idea that you would be um, so prepared for something that – when it happens or if it happens, your reaction is based off of that preparedness rather than off of some innate instinct. I mean, you know, you, you, you obviously have flown so many airplanes, you know all about seat of the pants flying, you know all about instinct and whether you're in one airplane or another, how, how you would maybe handle an out-of-control situation. Did, did, is there a balance between um, when those things happen reverting to some kind of seventh sense some kind of just pilot instinct um or applying a set of procedures that you have learned in the simulator i i think it's training it, it really is I, i'll give you go back to the example of jumping out of the f-105 
this was in peacetime up at uh, Cuddyback Range in California. But um, I was I was doing a dive bomb pass and uh, practice dive bomb pass and uh, released the uh, practice bomb and began the pullout. And just as I reached nose wings level and nose level, the engine quit. Um, the sequence of events lasted just a few seconds after that. But I, I looked down in the cockpit. I looked at my fuel flow indicator. I looked at other indications in the cockpit. Um, I looked back up outside. The airplane was slowly rolling to the right. I reached over with my left hand and pushed the ram air turbine lever out to extend the ram air turbine. Gave me a little bit of uh, roll control. Rolled the airplane back to wings level, told the rear seater to eject, eject, eject. He went out and I went out. Um, I look back on that and realize that was my training. That wasn't some gut feel of, oh, my God, what do I do? I don't understand what's going on. That, that all came out in a matter of seconds based on the extensive training. So you have you develop mental motor skills, if you will, from your training that uh, take you through. If you ever get to the point in an airplane where you're panicked, I don't know what to do. I'm going to die. You probably lost the ball game right there. So hmm. our training and flight test or training in uh, combat is to develop the mental motor reflexes. It, it would probably be remiss of me not to ask you because you mentioned it now a couple of times, but what was that ejection like? Uh, temporal distortion, did things, did time slow down? I mean, is it difficult to believe that you actually did it? How, how, how did you experience it? Yeah, I when I look back on it, realize how much data I took in and how many things I did, selecting emergency fuel was another thing. But looking at the things I did, I, it, it amazes me that uh, that the training was that imprinted on my brain to do that. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a it's a matter of uh, response, uh, autonomic response, but a well-disciplined autonomic response. I uh, I'm not sure I answered your question. Yeah, did you? I mean, what was it? Traumatic. Not not in the, you know, afterwards you were traumatized by it, but was it very violent? Um, yes, it was violent. I got out about 400 knots and uh, another little thing. The seat, ejection seat in the airplane had been modified <clears throat> to carry a force-deployed parachute in during Vietnam. And uh, it put a hard metal plate in the parachute pack. And what we didn't understand was it made you actually sit with your head up a with a forward of the headrest. So when I ejected and hit that airstream, my head was snapped back against the headrest and twisted sideways to my right. It was very violent. It, uh, it's hard to explain, but it feels like driving into a brick wall at 400 knots. Uh, and then the chute snapped open and uh, I was pretty close to the ground. So I looked down and it hit the ground. Wow. Well, what then as a, as a test pilot do you um, want to achieve? I mean, are, are there sort of, when you graduated, are there programs that you look at and you think, well, I'd, I'd rather not do that. I'd, I want to do something that's cool or sexy or, you know, are, are, are they all viewed with the same level of um, sort of worth and value that all the, the different programs that are available to you? Well, yeah, I, I think you take each one as a, as a task to exercise those skills and talents that you received for the year in test pilot school. So I don't think there's a bad one there. Some people, well, you always have a choice getting out. 
we had heavy drivers, C-131s uh, uh, or C-130s, uh, uh, various types of slow movers, fast movers in my class and navigators with me. So you have a choice, but generally the Air Force is going to place you into an aircraft of your type. So if you're transport, you're going to go to a transport test program. If you're fighter, you're going to go to a fighter program. Uh, but you also have a ability to request where you want to go. You would go to Edwards, you want to go to Eglin, you want to go to Holloman. And so uh, those, those factors enter into it. Um, I think everybody in the class was happy with their assignments. And uh, the main thing is to be challenged with a test program that uh, requires your skills to, uh, to execute it well. And as long as it does that, it's satisfying. I did, I did flight test on an AN2 Antonov Colt. Did you? Yeah, so biplane testing. What were you, what were you testing? We had a program where this was at Northrop, where one of the customers was trying to stop the infiltration of sapper attacks using an AN2 at night, uh, coming down mountain ridges and uh, dropping off these guys and then taking off and flying out. So um, the uh, the test was to figure out: could you find these things, these AN2s, with a fast mover and shoot them? Cool. Okay. So I won't go into the details of that, but we did some work with it. And um, so that was one end of the spectrum. And then you go to ATF and that's a different end of the spectrum, but they're both intriguing. So, so from your point of view, then, um, what was the end game? So you, you were, you're now a test pilot. You've um, accomplished that sort of dream. Where do you go from there? Were you, did you want to be a careerist? Um, can you be a careerist as a test pilot? Uh, yeah, you can. Um, I mean, there, there's all the way up to three and four star generals in, that are test pilots. And there is a track of test piloting jobs. Uh, the running of the Edwards Air Force Flight Test Center is usually a two star job. Um, you'll wind up going to the Pentagon sometime. And in fact, uh, that's one of the reasons I got out is I had the assignment at Pax River at teaching at the Navy Test Pilot School. And my next assignment was to go to the Pentagon. And I wasn't particularly fond of that. I still felt like I had test piloting. I wanted to get out of my system. So, uh, yeah, it, it's possible to move up and stay in the test pilot uh, arena, not necessarily flying test missions. You move into management positions eventually. It's, it's a, a bit of a, a tangent, well, a complete tangent, but the, the RAF has this uh, concept of specialist aircrew, which is your ability to say, I just want to fly for the rest of my career, and they freeze your rank freeze your pay um you know you don't climb up the ranks in in terms of seniority but you stay in the cockpit the whole time that you're in the in the air force and that seems to be a great way of you know building real experience and, and depth of experience is that a is that an attractive thing um you know from your point of view i mean obviously you're retired now but but would that have been attractive um do, do you think that going to places like the pentagon or doing exchanges or or going and working with the army for a year as a forward air controller or or ALO or whatever. Do you, do you think those things have, have their own merits? Well, I definitely do. And uh, the Air Force, of course, had up or out as their mantra. And in other words, if you don't keep moving up in the management chain of command, then you're, you're out of the Air Force. But I, I think that that is an exceptional way to, um, as you say, bring talent and keep talent within a certain specialty. And it makes us for a stronger test organization when you have that depth of talent. So 
No, the U.S. doesn't do that. But yes, I, I think it would be helpful if they did. And not just in flight tests, even in the operational world. Hmm. Uh, there would be, I think, those same benefits. You said then that you, you were working on the HARM program. Um, that's the high-speed anti-radiation missile. Um, and that was, was that a, an outgrowth of Shrike or, or Standard Arm, or was that a completely separate program? Where, where did that come from? Well, it, it's an, a Navy funded program initially, but uh, it obviously it's an evolution of the Shrike kind of weapon. It's a, kind of more of a marriage of Shrike and standard arm capabilities, but uh, it's it, it was a separate, harm was a separate weapon and a separate weapon system development program. And you, you said that that obviously meant that you, you ended up working in close proximity with, with uh, Northrop. Um, so how did that work? And, and what is the um, you know, where are the lines between the, the DOD and the, the military sort of contractor? Um, you know, when you're working with a, a defense contractor like that, do, do, do you sort of share everything and, and, and anything with them? Is there compartmentalization? Um, you know, how close can you actually end up getting to them? Well, the, the world of chastity in the United States had changed dramatically from the 1950s and 60s, where you had uh, what were called Category 1, Category 2. The Navy had uh, BIS trials and other forms of testing, and they were repetitive. In other words, uh, let's take Northrop as an example. Back in those days, uh, Northrop would do a test on the airplane, specific tests to find out what's the range, what's the G loads uh, you can get, and structurally, is it sound? And so Northrop would do those tests. And at some point, you would turn it over to the Air Force, and the Air Force would repeat the tests and do it themselves. And they, they soon found that in a 3,000 flight flight test program, that is a very wasteful way of doing it. So they now have uh, combined testing where the Air Force and the contractor simultaneously test the jet. On Tuesday, the Air Force guy may take it up and do a test point. On Wednesday, the Northrop guy may take it up and do the following test points, not repeating it but doing additional points to fill out the envelope for structural testing, for example. So um, you're shoulder to shoulder in terms of day-to-day uh, -day, uh, flight testing with uh, the contractor, uh, contractor pilots, contractor engineers, face-to-face -face with their Air Force uh, equivalents. And the same with the Navy. I think the Navy, not sure about this, but I think Navy may even have eliminated their separate testing in what were called BIS trials, Board of Inspection and Survey, which was was wasteful. So uh, everybody's taken on this more streamlined approach to testing. Did you have views on those sorts of things? And as you, as you went through, you know, prior to going and teaching at Pax River, um, which sounds like it was sort of your, your swan song in, in terms of your Air Force career. Um, but, but did you have views on those sorts of things as you went through and you observed the efficacy or the efficiency of the test program? Um, or were you really just focused on the flying? Um, were you able to, to influence things outside of that? Uh, well, I, I certainly noticed them, and uh, but I I didn't have the power to influence in a, in a structural way the way that we did business in the Air Force, if that's what you're asking. I, I was much too low in the chain of command. But uh, I certainly recognize where there were efficiencies and inefficiencies in the process. So you, you would have been, were you a major or a lieutenant colonel at this time? I had just made major. Okay. And what was teaching at 
Pax River like then? Um, well, that was a real eye opener for me, an Air Force guy, amidst all these Navy guys, and uh, it was it was quite different. Um, they had something called the reasonable man concept, and I I didn't at the time I didn't understand what it was, but uh, uh, in the Navy in the sailing ship days, British uh, I'm sure it was the same way. Once the ship sailed over the horizon, this home command could not influence the captain's operations. The captain had to do it on his own. And, and so decisions were based on the reasonable man concept. In other words, if something happened on the voyage and they come back to port and the captain reports in his log that he had to kill all the sailor, um, they would ask the question, would a reasonable man have done that? In other words, do we hold the captain culpable or did he do what a reasonable man would have done? And they carry that attitude with them in their daily operations. You do what you have to do that's reasonable. And if it turns out to be reasonable, then even if it violates the regulations, that's a, that'll be okay. Uh, and I found that uh, to be uh, an invigorating environment to work under. The um, Navy does do their test pilot school different. Um, the pilots, the, the Navy pilots and the Air Force pilot in my case, are pilots, they are not classroom instructors. They have civilians who are classroom instructors, or at least they did when I went through uh, there. They have um, a differentiation of the duties. Um, they also have a mental attitude that was different than the Air Force, not necessarily good, not necessarily bad, but the Navy saw their role as an officer and a gentleman in their khakis. They, you weren't an officer and a gentleman in your flight suit. So when you weren't flying, you got out of your flight suit and got into your khakis. And uh, that to me had some, not well, some negative benefits because the mind didn't always stay in the cockpit uh, as it does in the Air Force. You're always thinking about flying and, and they got away from that. They almost treated it as a second uh, calling. Uh, so it was different there. But nonetheless, I, I enjoyed that more than any other assignment I had Air Force uh, in the Air Force, and uh, it it was the reason, actually, if I'll be honest, that I left the Air Force is because of the reasonable man concept and the way of operating. It's very interesting. So, so what, um, before we get on to that and explore that a little bit, then what were you flying at, at Pax River? Were you flying well, anything had, different than you've flown at the Air Force test, test pilot yeah. program? Unfortunately, you know, being an Air Force guy, they said, okay, you're instructing the T-38. I said, I that. <laughs> I've done the F5 T38 route. So uh, I, they gave me an OV-1 Mohawk, which uh, was actually a blast to fly. I enjoyed that. Flew the uh, Beaver and the Otter. I flew the X-26, which is a Schweitzer 232 glider. Um, I, they, they tolerated me in the cockpit of a helicopter as long as an instructor was there. And as long as we didn't have to do anything more than just go up and land. <laughs> it was beyond my capability. Um, and I got to fly a P3, uh, once, uh, but, uh, it was a, it was a variety of aircraft. I, I got a four one time, I think got the T2C. I got, did you get checked out late in my tour to fly a T2C with, uh, students on spin, uh, demonstrations. I noticed when, and I don't want to, I, I'm not trying to embarrass you or, or, or sort of, um, pull you up on anything but when when we did the intros for the this has just gone to when we did the intros the intros for the wild weasel 
um interview there were four four people and the, the three other guys went first and they listed the airplanes they would flown and i was thinking that's quite impressive you know this guy's flown six different jets and, and so on and so forth and then you came on i said i i can't remember what the figure was i've flown you know 70 different airplanes and i've got you know five thousand hours or whatever and and so my question was going to be do you get to a point then where you have flown so many aeroplanes, you can pretty much, so notwithstanding helicopters, but aeroplanes, fixed wing, you can pretty much get in anything and fly it. Um, is, is the degree of sophistication of the aeroplane in terms of how it's hydraulics uh, configured or it's electrical or pneumatic systems, uh, you know, does that really impact you? And, and the reason I wonder that is because when you read about uh, World War II guys, for example, when the aeroplanes were much simpler, they would, just be given a handbook and told you want to go and fly a typhoon are you rated in the spitfire yeah okay we'll just go and pick up this book read it for a bit and then you can go out and fly one there's one out the front you know did you have the same level of um you know not, not ability but the same level of accessibility to these airplanes after that many after having flown that many different types uh no i mean it's, it's not like a world war ii days and you described it accurately as far as my readings have, have uh, revealed um no, today you, you really have to know the airplane better before you go fly it. Now, I will say that of the 70 airplanes, uh, many of those were um, with an instructor pilot. And one of the things we didn't talk about test pilot school, you're taught to be flexible. You're taught not to have preconceived notions of an airplane. And so they expose you to many different kinds of airplanes. Uh, in test pilot school, uh, we had just a huge variety, F-106s and F-105s and uh, airplanes from the Navy and airplanes from the Army, and they put you in them. The A-7 was interesting because it's a single-seat airplane. They gave, they did give you the book for one night and said, read the book and go fly a single-seat, uh, single-engine airplane. Um, but what they're trying to get across to you is airplanes can be different than you expect, so don't expect them to be like the airplanes you've flown and be flexible enough that you can change your gains, uh, which is your your human response to the airplane if you if you need to and uh, that that is uh, probably one of the biggest lessons you take away from test pilot school is being flexible as a pilot so i'll never say i could fly anything you give me because that 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 would be a little bit too braggadocious i think but uh, i will say that you learn to be flexible as a pilot talk, talk about sort of expressions um regarding aviation and one of them is that you know if it looks good it will fly good terrible grammar but um is that true uh, in your experience i don't know the mohawk flew great and it looks like a <laughs> in your garden eating lettuce but can you do, do you sort of develop this sense where you can size up an airplane before you fly it and and i mean this is the you know the continuation of what you've just been describing which is don't have preconceived ideas you know but can you i mean you you can look at an airplane and say i said 106 okay it's a delta wing so i know that if i you know get slow on the final turn um i might end up behind the power curve and i might you know might not be able to recover i mean are there those sorts of things that you because of your experience and your academic understanding and ed education you can look at an airplane instinct and not instinctively but um instantly be able to figure certain things out yeah i, I think you do that uh the draken is a is a case in point i never flown a draken and uh, got a chance to fly one and uh, i knew that it would do exactly like you say it's a low aspect ratio wing it's going to have high induced drag so don't get slow with it low to the ground 
Um, so yeah, you you certainly in a, in a Antonov Colt with a biplane with a low wing loading is going to be flying about the same speed all the time, no matter what you do. <laughs> uh, so I think certainly you you get general impressions or have general impressions of an airplane based on its shape. But uh, there have been a lot of sexy looking airplanes that didn't fly very well. And the thing we have going for us now is that um, modern digital computers have the ability to um, crunch the equations of motion, which are the foundational equations that determine the dynamics of flight. Uh, and in so doing, they can actually be much more precise in their predictions. And so uh, you don't get a surprise nearly as much as you did in the old days before we had high-speed computer simulations. Hmm. That, I mean, that's an interesting question, isn't it? The, the development of... Um computing power let's say um you know to run things like flight control systems um full authority digital engine control systems that type of stuff D does that actually end up eroding the the quality of the of the test pilot then because with those things active and present all the time some skills atrophy you know the the, the stick and rudder skills the ability to i mean if you just take a helicopter as an example you know helicopters in the 50s had no governor you know you'd have to roll on the throttle as you apply collective in order to make sure that the the rotor disc didn't stall and now there's a governor an electronic governor or a mechanical governor so now you just pull up on the collective and it automatically increases fuel to the carburetor which you know keeps the disc spinning at the right speed um and so i, I guess sort of helicopter pilots back then would probably have been better sort of stick and rudder pilots than or stick and pedal pilots than they are nowadays so does the same apply then to test pilots the in, in terms of you know th there's maybe a, a transfer of speciality from the stick and rudder to understanding complex systems and and computers uh yeah there's there's it's interesting the uh if you look at the history of aviation um in the 50s with the second generation of jets we went to the century series of airplanes higher faster bigger, heavier, um, but the simulation wasn't as good. So we had a lot of unknowns and gotchas. We lost, we lost a lot of airplanes in the initial phases of operational deployment, the F-105, for example. Uh, but the interesting thing is, instead of exploring higher and faster, today, the F-22 and F-35 are no fast, no, in fact, in some cases, are not as fast as some of the Century Series airplanes. So what is it we're doing? Well, an airplane is not defined by how high, how fast today. It's defined by the capability that the avionics give it. So flight controls are one aspect, but the weapon systems becomes much more dominating. And the weapon system is dominating because it is digitally, it's a digital base and it can do so many more things than you could do in the 1950s. So the airplane is defined not by its raw performance, but by its digital performance, if you will. Having said that, there are, with flight controls, there are cases where you get the unknowns it, in areas of the envelope where you have a very difficult time, even with computers, of computing what the results are gonna be. Nonlinear flows, um, simple thing of coming in and landing in ground effect. We still have difficulty in that area. High angle of attack departures, and uh, high rotation rates and that sort of thing. The computer may miss it and, and has missed it, and we have to go back and retune the airplane. The nice part is you don't go up and hacksaw off the top of the vertical fin or 
bolt on a Humpty Frats on the wing, you go into the software and you change the software to make the flying qualities different. So here's a, here's a, uh, it's not really a philosophical question, although there's, I suppose, a philosophical element to it then. So taking what you've just described as, you know, the airplane being characterized now, not really by how fast or how high it can go, although those are obviously important, but, but, you know, the, the central hub in terms of its weapon systems and its sophistication, its ability to reach out and achieve a kinetic kill or an electronic kill or whatever it is. Um, is, is that what has led to development programs um, really stretching out. I mean, if you take, you said you worked on F-35, you take F-35 as an example, F-22, you know, the, the F-22 was actually, what was it, 10 years or something like that from first flight to, to entry to service, but F-35 I think is longer. Um, and then you compare that to some of the Century Series fighters where they may have been developed over a couple of years. Um, is, is it that sophistication that's caused that, or is it an industrial thing or, or a you know, is it something to do with the way that the military contractors work these days that has meant that that, that cycle is protracted? Well, well, that's the $10 million, $10 billion question, um, because uh, yeah, something else that has occurred that is different is the cycle time of knowledge is 18 months. And by that, if you're familiar with the Moore's cycle, where computer capacity and memory double every 18 months, if you have a program that is four years to the first flight, and then maybe another five years before it's fully absorbed into the operational environment, you go through many orders of magnitude of the computer capacity. So the thing that's obsolescing is not the aerodynamics of the wing or any of that. What's obsolescing is your tactical ability via the computer. Mm. So now if you draw the, you cycle time out, you can, what you're going to be able to do at best is, is field an obsolete vehicle. Yeah. And that is, that is different about what we do. And um, I, I've looked at a bunch of the older programs. They, they typically took less time, maybe three years from first flight to uh, completion of the test program. But um, I, I think the real thing is this uh, digital obsolescence that drives things today. And, and our, our four-year programs exacerbate the problem of digital obsolescence. It's, um, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's, we're, we're definitely, um, I'm going to have to bring this back to YF23 soon, otherwise you're, you're going to say you have to go. But, but, but just if, if I may, um, because you, you have worked on F-35 and, and just picking up on, you know, one of the criticisms of the F-35 is that it's been, you know, it's still undergoing undergoing testing. There still isn't a full suite of software available for it. It still doesn't have the full mission capability in the, you know, originally intended sense of the word. Uh, I, I, you know, I've been to Nellis and I spent some time with the four two two. I've done it twice, and and everybody I spoke to there thinks it's a great aeroplane, and they can they can see you know that uh, it will get to where it needs to be. And if you if you look at earlier programs, something like the F fifteen. Uh, when, when it entered service in 1974 or something like that, um, you know, that thing entered service with radar problems. It didn't have a full electronic warfare suite. You know, the, the airplane matured over time to the point where in 1991 it went out and, and, and did its job 
with alacrity and the Israelis have used it that way too. So, so there is a, an element of, um, I guess, pragmatism around the fact that maybe some of these things don't go into service and on, on day one, being able to do all the things they should do. But one of the criticisms you hear of the F-35 is that it would just won't get there. It just, you know, there's always delays, there's constant delays. And then if you feed into that argument, what you've just described around Moore's law and, um, you know, sort of memory and, and CPU power, um, is, is there a, you know, is is there an end state for something like the F thirty five? Then do you? I mean, is it always just going to be iterations of software, or will it get to a point where it does what it's supposed to do? Uh, it will. It will get there. If you can go back in time and see that almost every airplane that's ever been fielded uh, has had difficulties. Um, I, I was told I was at Wichita with the F one hundred five for about three years and. I was told that the Wichita, they have a plant, they're Boeing plants on the uh, south side of the field. And um, they were producing B-47s. And they said at the time, the B-47s would roll out of the factory floor, do a 180 degree turn and enter a mod line. <laughs> so brand new airplanes could be modified. So uh, to have problems during the initial introduction of a new airplane while aggravating and frustrating and a target for the political arrows, uh, it is not unusual to have something that complex have problems initially. So it, it will, it will achieve a, a fine operational record, but it's, it does take an aggravating long time. Can I ask you one more question about this? And it is, it is loaded. Um, well, is it loaded? I don't know. You can just, you determine whether or not it's loaded, but there is a, a group of, gentlemen similar similar sort of age to you from you know sort of who had um illustrious careers in the air force in the 70s so you know pierre spray um darth Granrod. i don't know if you um um no it's not Granrod. It's, oh, i can't remember his surname drabant darth drabant who did the operational test for the f-117 and he worked with the red eagles and you know that that foreign mutual expo- exploitation piece was was very heavily involved in that um he was a you know i think uh, an acolyte of um Tom Christie and, and Boyd, um, who are very, very critical of the F-35. It's, you know, it's the wrong platform. We don't need it. And one of the things that, uh, and Darth hasn't said this, but I've heard um, Pierre Spray say it to um, a Marine colonel who had flown the F-22 and the F-35, whose name escapes me, when he defended it was that he was a, a company man. He was he was in the pocket or the pay of, of, of Lockheed Martin. But you know, do, do you think that there is any valid criticism of the F-35 in, in that sense? Is it, is it the right aeroplane for the mission? So forget about whether or not it can do it. You know, is it the right aeroplane? Should should the Air Force have been looking at something that was lightweight, more akin to an, an F-16A than uh, the F-35 that it is? Or, or do you think that, you know, those are um, invalid criticisms? Well, I, I'll be honest, I've been retired since 2006, so I don't have the inside knowledge of the F-35 program. Um, I, I've heard this argument before. In fact, as you point out, the F-16 was the LWF, the lightweight fighter. It did not start off as an air-to-ground machine. In fact, most of the originators of the YF-16 are probably apoplectic to, to look at it now and see what it's being done, being offered up as. So that pressure to have a cheap, light, swarming 
Nats uh, is, is something that uh, is not the first time with the F-35. I don't know what people would say the F-35 mission is that it doesn't fulfill, or, or the F-22 for that matter. You know, you, you often heard the argument with the F-22 of the Cold War is over. Why do we need an F-22? Um, I, I, I don't, I don't, I have not read what specifically Spray or some of the others are saying the mission is that we need an aircraft, not the F-35, but some other aircraft to, to solve. Let's, let's get back then to your career. Uh, I've taken you down this rabbit hole long enough. So, so what, what's then led to you? So you said the, uh, sort of reasonable man concept was what you know ultimately made you decide maybe not to go back to the air force but what led to you joining um was it was it northrop that you joined yes okay what led you no joining northrop well i i had had a good association with them as i mentioned one of my assignments last assignments in the air force before i went to the navy was the f5 program and uh, so i was the only test pilot on the f5 program at the time it was winding down but I had um, a working relationship with the, uh, the company. And uh, so when I finally decided that I was going to uh, try to continue test pilot work, but in the civilian environment, Northrop came to mind and I put in a, a request to be interviewed. And uh, as I recall, I also went to the airlines and tried to get an airline uh, slot. And uh, so I, I was just job searching at that point. And uh, Northrop knew me knew of my work and uh, hired me. Did you, um, again, it's just a, a, maybe an ignorant question, but did you know what you were going to be doing? I mean, obviously you want to be a test pilot, but did you know on what, what you would end up flying? Was, it, was there a stream for heavies or fighters like you described earlier? Uh, I didn't know uh, about the F-20 like I should have. Um, and I assumed that I'd be doing F-5 test work. There was still some F-5 testing going on in the company. And, uh, so I, I took a pig and a poke, if you will, uh, not really knowing what exactly I would be doing. And it turned out that I was assigned to the F-20 program, which uh, was another challenge and a uh, very interesting airplane to be flying. So, so for um, you know, people not aware of that, that's, that's a single engine sort of based on the F-5, AP, APG-66 radar, F-16 radar, um, you know, MFDs, a sort of modern cockpit by the standards of the day. It was championed by... I don't know if this was a commercial thing, but didn't Chuck Yeager get behind it? But but ultimately, it wasn't successful. What, what was what was your take on the F twenty story then? Yeah, it's APG sixty eight, by the way, and uh, yeah, F twenty eight Tiger Shark was um, an interesting evolution of the F five family. The F five had filled a niche in the starting in the uh, uh, JFK years of uh, an airplane that was supportable and maintainable and flyable by our allies around the world. And so it became a foreign military sale airplane that was flown by 33 countries. Um, and it went through the F5, <clears throat> excuse me, F5A and B, then to the F5E and F versions. And it, so it was oh, about every 20 years was upgraded in its capabilities. So the next logical step was another upgrade from the F5E and F, and that became the F20 which was a single engine uh, Mach 2 version of the basic F5 T38 design. Was it good? It, was I mean, it sounds compelling. It was, it was excellent. It was, 
it was the one airplane that uh, should have been built and should have been fielded. Um, it was killed by political considerations. The country for about 40 years had provided these types of airplanes to our allies around the world because they were so, so efficient and easily maintained and easily flown. And so we did that for 40 years and um, it came time for the follow-on and the F-20 was nixed by Carter initially, who said, we can't sell airplanes to our foreign allies because it, it causes the world to become unstable. And then the, everybody jumped in, the French jumped in, the British jumped in, everybody said, well, we'll sell them the airplanes. And uh, Carter did a 180 degree reversal and said, oops, maybe it's okay to build this. So we built it. And the real and Nixon supported the F-20. And the real turnaround came when uh, Ronald Reagan said that he would sell F-16s to Venezuela, Pakistan, and South Korea. And suddenly, an airplane lesser than the frontline U.S. fighter was being offered to third world countries and allies around the world. And at that point, there was um, a general feeling that if you give it to this X country, I want one just like the X country has. And uh, F-16 took off and that, that killed the sales for the F-20. So mm -hmm. national policy of what we were going to export in terms of military hardware changed the outcome of the F-20 program. What, what did you... What did you rate about it then from a, from a pilot's point of view? What was it that was so compelling? Well, <clears throat> the, the concept of the family of airplanes, it really is about having the most airplanes available to go to war. And so they are simple to work, operate, and they're very reliable. And um, they have a tremendous up rate, our operational ready rate. And uh, the F-20 had all that, but it had high performance, and now it had digital avionics. The APG-68 radar was a tremendous radar. It could shoot the Sparrow, and we did that, uh, carry a variety of weapons, and uh, was, was not as expensive as an F-16. So it, there was nothing technically that was wrong with the airplane. It was a political problem that doomed the airplane. It's sort of wary of, of not sort of, again, you know, sort of broaching um, sensitive subjects. But one thing that I was sort of curious about, I don't know if enough time has passed for you to feel like you could offer a, a view on this, is, you know, exactly how far out that radar could see in the nose of that aeroplane, because it's a, it's a little skinny little nose, skinny little radar. Um, I, I guess, you know, the un the unclassified information around Sparrow is that, you know, you could shoot it out 15, 20 miles or so. You know, was that sufficient to, to be able to do that? Because, of course, you need to be able to see the guy, sort your targets, do the whole, you know, going through the process of trying to identify if they're good guys or bad guys. Was that a really short-range capability, or did it, was there a sort of true BVR capability behind the aeroplane? No, it had a true BVR. That what you, It's hard to see from the pictures of it. They moved the radar bulkhead back um, uh, as okay. 15 inches. So it, the radar dish became larger, which is – measure of how much energy you can get out there in space. So it had a, it had a respectable uh, BVR capability, lock on and um, track while scan radar. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was definitely, it was a step beyond the F-5, a significant step beyond the F-5 and more closely approaching current fighters at the time. 
was the was the ATF um, sort of on the horizon at this point in time? Then the advanced tactical fighter, which eventually resulted in that F twenty two, F twenty, well, YF twenty two, YF twenty three, sort of fly off. Yeah, most people don't realize that in nineteen seventy one, the Air Force began studies of an advanced tactical fighter. Now, this is before the F fifteen even made its first flight, before the F F sixteen made its flight. Um, and people were already thinking about the future. So there was work going on in, uh, if I remember right, there were nine aerospace companies that uh, took on the challenge of exploring the fighters of the future. Nobody knew at that time uh, whether stealth was even doable. And so many of the designs were not stealthy, but they were advanced fighters at the time. So stealth, I, I suppose, things like the A-12, the SR-71, you know, Lockheed had developed the, the sort of sawtooth capabilities and radar absorbent materials to help reduce the signature of that that platform. But was stealth uh, generally a well-known concept? Low observability, was it a, a well-known concept, uh, you know, through, well, you through that time? The, you left out the Horton 229. The Horton 229, of course, the flying wing, yeah. Well, it was uh, it was intentionally stealthy. At uh, the production version, there was one that uh, was, was flown, but the production version had uh, plywood, five millimeter plywood skins with a powdered graphite packed between the skins. I did that. Two, the two layers of plywood wow. uh, to absorb radar energy. So it was intentionally um, and it accrued by our today's standards, but certainly uh, the tests, the pole tests that Northrop did with a full scale model showed that for the radars of World War II, it was quite effective, stealthy airplane. So the concept of, of an airplane that's hard to see had been around for a long time. Uh, I, I just think about that story about the F-117 where the mathematics, as I understand it, maybe I'm recalling it incorrectly, but the mathematics behind it had been published in a paper by a Russian scientist or mathematician. Um, and, and I just sort of wondered when whether you know, generally amongst sort of the tactical Air Force community, if there is such a thing, you know, people in that space, whether there was a real sort of appetite to pursue that. Um, and, you know, frankly, how, how the Russians managed to miss it um, is, is sort of beyond me. Maybe they, they, they saw it and didn't want to do it. I don't know. But, um, you know, so, so are you saying from 1970 onwards, there was a pursuit for a low observable, a low observable um, tactical fighter, or are you saying that was just sort of a, a, a side quest, if you will? Well, 1971 was a quest for an advanced tactical fighter, but this issue of stealth was not known well enough to say definitively. In fact, the Air Force couldn't even decide definitively if they could put stealth in an airplane in 1971. They were just looking at advanced aerodynamic designs. The, uh, the it's interesting. We, <laughs> your question earlier was, if it looks good, it flies good. What's the F-117's problem? Uh, well, it, it obviously reflects a one type of theory about stealthy designs. The F-117 is a, what's called a faceted design. So that's one type of design. And obviously, we don't build airplanes that look like that, thank God, uh, today. <laughs> So it must mean that the technology has advanced uh, beyond the F-117 type of faceted structure. And I, yeah, I don't know why the Russians didn't put two and two together. 
or maybe they'd put two and two together so they didn't want to have frying pans flying in formation <laughs> how did you get into atf then when we when were you introduced to it uh in terms of you you being a, a participant in in northrop's um program uh well let's see it must have been about 1980 probably 85 or 86 i was uh called down to an office by a, a guy named Dell Jacobs, who was a retired general officer. And he took, uh, I think, four of us pilots into a room. And on the desk, he had a model of what was the YF-23. And although we didn't know it was YF-23 at the time. And I, I remember him talking, and I, I cannot remember to this day what he said. I was so focused on that airplane because it was so beautiful. Um, so that was that was my introduction, and I, I didn't at the time know that I would one day be flying it because it was still in the future, 1990. So uh, that's how I got introduced to it, and then from that time I time on I was fully engaged with the OIF 23 program. What were, what were you doing then? So what was your contribution to that you know, four or five year period then until the, the first flight? Well. In all the programs we're involved with, uh, it's uh, getting with the engineers and working through bit by bit, piece by piece, the design of the airplane from a hydraulic system to the flying qualities to the flight control systems. And that's, that, that's probably the most important part of a test pilot's job is to interface with the engineer who is a, gr a good engineer, but doesn't understand flying and being an interface between the operational pilot who is a great pilot but can't explain why the airplane flies funny. You have the test pilot in the middle interpreting that and understanding what the operational pilot says and turn that into engineering language, which the test pilot also has because we have engineering degrees. So we're an intermediary in the process. And, and quite frankly, I think I found more enjoyment and satisfaction working with the engineers to develop an airplane than the actual flying of the airplane. Yeah. Is, is that process collaborative then, or is it sort of hierarchical? So would, for example, um, because you've got the conflicting, and I guess they are conflicting demands of, of low observability and, and aerodynamics, presumably driving the shape and the, the look of the aeroplane in terms of, you know, how it's going to cut through the air and, and fly and generate lift and, you know, bounce radar signals in, the, in a different direction or absorb them or whatever it's going to do. Um, so, so would they, you know, those, the people responsible for that come and say to you, well, Paul, we're going to stick, you know, we're going to change the angle of the wing or we're going to stick this here or we'll stick there. You need to figure out how to, you know, what the impact is on, on, on sort of from a flying qualities point of view, or would they come and say, you know, can we do this? Um, you know, so are you, are you collaborating or are you dealing with what they give you? No, I, I think actually a lot of that actually goes on within the engineering community. The, and that's a natural, uh, point counterpoint the aerodynamicist wants that smooth aerodynamic shape and the low observable guy wants nothing to do with it so you have a natural uh, it's not animosity but an engineering uh, push and pull on how we solve this problem and the pilot can get in there and uh, and do such things as say uh, geez you know uh, guys uh, the canopy bow here is blocking my forward vision what can we do about that? And then they might go back and redesign the canopy bow. Uh, you, I, I, I got involved a lot with flight controls and so how the flight controls operate. But the, the actual give and take of the design occurs within the engineering community. 
by, you know, the engineering community fights for the lightest weight, highest performing piece of machinery. And sometimes those things are counterproductive. You, you can't make something super light without it being unreliable or not having the strength that is required. Um, so I, I, I am, I, I put it this way, I used to call it the chocolate and vanilla ice cream uh, example. If you get with an engineer when he's busy creating a system and he says, look what I've got, Paul, and you look at it and you go, hmm, that's pretty vanilla. Could you do it in tutti frutti? He'll say at that time, says, yeah, I think I can do that in tutti frutti. And that is a time when the airplane is moldable, changeable, and you have a, a chance as a pilot to make an input and change the systems. Because the engineer, in many cases, picks something that he thinks is right, but he's also amenable. And it's sometimes it's much as it's easy for him to change the design when it's on paper. When an airplane is operational, it is... It is very, very difficult to change anything about an airplane. It's expensive. You have to go retrofit or have mod lines. And so it's, but once it's in paper, or while it's in paper, it's moldable, meldable. And uh, so that's, that's how the process works. So there's a, there's a couple of obvious questions around that. So I'll, I'll try and simplify them. But so the first then is, between your meeting in sort of 85 or so and, and 1990, how much did the design of the airplane change? Well, um, in the in the paper stages, it changed a lot. Um, I, in my book that I wrote, I've, I've got some pictures of the various iterations, one called a Christmas tree, which was stealthy and looked like a Christmas tree plan form wise, but was horrible at high angle attack. There's an air right there is an example of the yin and yang between the, co the competing designs. The LO design was great. The aerodynamic design was stinking. Hmm. So the two had to get together and say, how are we going to solve this? And they changed the shape. So the, the, the Christmas tree only looks remotely like the YF-23. So there were changes. Um, the, the more interesting one, I think, is the difference between the YF-23 and the F-23 and the YF-22 and the F-22. There you see refinements of the design. In general, they look, they look similar, but they definitely made engineering improvements on both of the production versions of those airplanes. So, so the second question then is, is who arbitrates those design decisions? So if you've got the you know, yin-yang, the natural tension between LO and, uh, and aerodynamics, when they can't agree, who, who comes in and says, well, we're going to go with this or that? That's the job of the chief engineer. And when the chief engineer can't resolve it in terms of schedule or time, there's a program manager who makes these next level decisions of, well, you don't have time to change that. We got to go with this. So it's a, it's a hierarchy of authority that reacts to changes. I just wonder sort of how easy it was to work on this kind of stuff. Did you, you know, do you think of the something like the F-117 and you can kind of understand why they were, you know, there were drapes between, you know, sort of where they were building it and, you know, very, very, you know, sort of careful not to let anyone see it. But, you know, the F-20, the ATF program, let's say the YF-23, YF-22, that, that, that was tested in public, um, you know, for one of a better description. It wasn't tested in a, in a, in a sort of black context. So, you know, I just wondered if it, 
that made life easier if if the constraints of something like the f117 would have puts an additional strain on on the development process well i wasn't directly involved with the f117 test process so i don't i don't really know but there there are there are some things that slow you down or constrain you um but uh for whatever reason the air force decided to take the uh atf public uh, with at least some notional drawings initially provided to the press to bring it into the uh the white world if you will but there was still a lot of technology that was classified even though the public could see pictures of the airplane what about the um you know the efforts of your competitors then my, my understanding is that you know the air force you know doesn't share the, the designs there's no sort of technology sharing between what they're looking at from one defense contractor and uh, you know or another defense contractor did you you know were you are you in any way interested what the other guy's doing are you in any way curious well i wonder if he's or she's you know designing the airplane in the same way or, or what we're going to be up against does 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 what the other person's doing have a bearing on what you're doing well you're obviously being human beings you're you're curious and you, you're being challenged with a program that could be worth billions of dollars so there's certainly a question of how how those guys doing do they have any problems and what's their design look like um sure that's that's just natural human beings but um no we uh we remained uh pretty isolated i Dave Ferguson was the chief test pilot for Lockheed at the time. And uh, one of the things was we were physically and, uh, and intellectually separated physically from the other team and could not discuss with them. But Dave and I got together as chief test pilots. And we said, look, Dave, we know we can't talk to each other about what we're doing. But if there's a common problem that affects us that could affect our air crews, for example, we all both have the same kind of engine, same Pratt and Whitney and Pratt and GE engine. If we have a problem, we're going to get with the other guy and tell him what's going on with his problem, so we don't have some, a chance of one of our people getting hurt. And that was our agreement, and uh, and we had to do that one time. But otherwise, it was hands off, eyes closed, no discussions, and and we we followed that. Do you think? I mean, they are different designs, and I'm you know I'm I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to get to a point where we make and make any assertions about there being copying or or anything inappropriate like that. But do you think it was inevitable that the design similarities between the two platforms would be there? Was there, do they speak to the fact you know you've got the sort of outward canted tailplanes um, or stabs, uh, maybe as you call them, that sort of um, well you'll describe <laughs> you'll describe the design properly, but a sort of trapezoid type wing. Um, do you think that's a, that's just what stealth or low observable designs look like at that time? Um, so it was kind of inevitable you'd end up going with, um, you know, sort of similar approaches or, you know, you've just described faceting as, as one approach, but there are many others. Was there the potential that you'd actually come out with quite different, quite different designs? Uh, well, when you have, there's specifications, uh, the, or requirements, if you will, one of which was you must carry certain weapons internal to the airplane. So that starts to define the form and shape of the airplane to carry weapons of a certain size internally. Um, you want Mach 2 capability that determines uh, aerodynamic shaping and coefficients of drag and so forth. So it doesn't surprise me that you didn't wind up with 
radically different designs between the two companies. Although I would I would suggest that to me, the YF23 looks different than the YF22. Uh, so the unique assembly of the pieces resulted in two different looking airplanes. But in the words of the Secretary of the Air Force, when they awarded the contract, both airplanes met the requirements. They had greater faith that Lockheed could execute the program from a management point of view. And that that was their public announcement. And I have never I've never seen anything else in writing over over a period of time that uh, was different from that pronouncement. We're sort of skipping ahead to the end of, of that particular story, but but maybe maybe while as you've mentioned it, we we'll, we can just sort of cover that off there. And so uh, you did a, a fantastic presentation for um, I think it's called is it the Pennsylvania Seniors? It's uh, Betty Betty. Uh, I can't it's one of my favorite YouTube channels. I love it. Um, anyway, so so, but but I think you talked about that at the end of your your presentation. Um, was there an element of PR then in the in the decision? You know, did Lockheed just play a blinder, as we'd say in the UK? Did they did they do just a great job of doing some PR and 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 making that case? Um, you know, did you have a view on it? Well, yeah, I, you're referring to that uh, insular. Uh, talk that Jim Sandberg and I gave on the YF-23. Um, yeah, I, I, I have felt, and I mentioned in the talk, that um, there is an element of showmanship in these things. You've got to respect your customer may not be technically as astute as your engineers are. They are looking at the airplane as a whole. What does it do? What can it do? Does it appear to be uh, a well thought out design? And part of the, the issue that I, I believe is that you do things in flight demonstration that catches the people's attention and accentuates whether you've got your arms around this design. Lockheed went up into high angle of attack testing to 60 degrees angle of attack. Now this is during the demonstration and validation program. So they did high angle attack testing they shot missiles. Uh, they went to nine G's on their airplane. I can't tell you the number of people come up to me and said, Paul, did you know that the YF-22 pulled nine G's and shot a missile at 60 degrees angle of attack? <laughs> no, I didn't actually know that. Well, they did not happen simultaneously. And they were, in retrospect, hard of the envelope kind of flying. They were not extremes. The missile launch was... It's a benign type of condition, but on film, it looked really good. Mm. And Lockheed chose not to do those things. Not that they couldn't have done them, but they chose not to do them. Uh, it turns out that the YF-23 has the same 60 degree angle of attack capability that the YF-22 has. Uh, the YF-22 can be at zero airspeed and still pitch its nose because it has thrust vectoring. The YF-23 could not do that. However, it's inherently a stable airplane and it's very stable high angle stack. But none of that has a picture associated with it. Only Lockheed has a picture associated with it. And I have always felt that, that there is some element of the selection of an airplane that, that something, a show of capability, leaves an impression with a potential customer that, hey, this thing can do this and this other thing can't. 
And it wasn't that YF-23 can't, that YF-23 chose not to do it. We 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 kind of we definitely skipped the Y twenty three test flying uh, bit, so we'll, we'll we'll come back to that. But but let me just stay with this for for the minute then, because I think it's I'm, well, I'm keen to understand emotionally what that does to you. I mean, you're so first of all, you're a Type A personality. You don't like losing. That's you know probably a standard trait for um, most fighter pilots. Um, second of all, you're you've invested all this brain power and and sort of commitment and um you have all this expectation around this 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 program being good you believe in it how does it feel then to find out that you that you didn't win what's the you know is, is it sort of crushing in the sense that you, you you when you see athletes who don't win a final a sports final you know sort of on the ground with their hands in their their heads in their hands is, is it that sort of experience i would say it must be uh, i don't know what that it, athlete is feeling but yes it's uh, it's very discouraging uh i mean I, the yf23 followed the f20 hmm. which was a, a discouraging outcome hmm. so yeah it is but you okay. you can't you can't let that drag you down you've got to get up to the next project and shake it off yeah and so does the athlete so, so let's talk, let's talk about that at the airplane. And how how would you describe it? The, the, the YF twenty three. How would you describe it? Well, these airplanes were in the fifty thousand pound class. Fifty, if, if I remember, the original specifications was fifty thousand pounds and thirty five million dollars a copy. That was the boundaries, and uh, it since busted those boundaries. But that was the, the box that they were built around: fifty thousand pounds, thirty five million dollars a copy. Um, the airplane was uh, optimized for stealth. It, it was a low observable, very low observable airplane. It was very clean, uh, taking off two of the aft surfaces, the empennage surfaces, and replacing it with the, the V-tails, uh, resulted in a very low coefficient of drag. So the airplanes were very fast. Uh, there were certain things that we wanted to demonstrate in the ATF. One was what's called super cruise, the ability to fly the airplane at supersonic speeds without using an afterburner. Super maneuverability that was at least equal to and hopefully greater than the existing F-15, F-16 airplanes. And advanced avionics that allowed uh, you to see but not be seen. Uh, and uh, so those, those were the things that were to be demonstrated. And the shape of the airplane is optimized for stealth, optimized for performance. Um, the avionics part of it, we talked about that earlier, about the digital influence. The avionics portions are as cosmic as the airplane is, uh, and they were tested on a flying test bed uh, airplane. And both companies, Lockheed and Northrop, had their own flying test bed airplane. So, but the airplane was easy to fly. It was, it was, it was just uh, almost mindless, mind-numbing how easily it flew. Uh, from landing to takeoff, uh, uh, I, formation flying was just a delight. Air refueling was a delight. I could, it's the only airplane I could take my hands off the throttle and sit on the tanker. Really? And I could relax the grip on the hand grip and it would just sit there. I never got to the point where it took my hand completely off, but it was a beautiful, beautiful flying airplane. And uh, again, the credit goes to the engineers, but it also goes to the fact that we have the computer power to simulate that. and make corrections before we ever fly to the flight control system. 
Paul, I've got a thousand questions. I, I'm, I don't know how I'm going to get through this next bit, but so, so the first question I would, I would ask then is this, and um, you talk about handling qualities. You earlier said it was inherently stable. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's probably fairly well known. Things like the F-16 are inherently unstable. What are those two things and why do they matter? Now, let me, let me make it clear. It is an unstable airframe. But as you change your angle of attack, as the center of uh, pressure shifts because of the aerodynamics, you have to, you want to, and Northrop has kind of patented this approach in their aerodynamic science, you want the airplane to naturally recover itself. So as the, the aerodynamics are such that as you go to these high angles of attack, which normally would result in uh, departures uh, in an unstable airplane, you want to be able to naturally, the airplane naturally wants to pitch back down out of the condition. So at high angle attack, it acts, it acts as a stable airplane, i.e. pitching out of the condition, not departing from the condition. At normal flight angles of attack, it is an unstable airframe. So the I, w- I would so in my mind, then I'm thinking, well, if you've got computers that are handling all of the flight controls and stuff, does it really matter if it doesn't want to sort of come back out of um, that high angle of attack condition in, in a sort of calm way? Well, that's that's a design philosophy. Um, Northrop has always, with the F five family of airplanes, always assured themselves that no matter what happens, including flight control failures, that the airplane will on its own recover. The F-22 is a wonderful airplane example. Literally, our emergency procedure for out of control is remove your hands and feet from the rudder pedals and hands from the stick and let the airplane take care of it. It'll sort it out every time. Um, And uh, you can do do a lot with digital flight controls, but if you go to what's called saturation, in other words, you get to the point where you're commanding the full throw of the control surface to recover the airplane and it's not recovering you want the airplane to naturally be able to recover and that takes special design qualities in the in the aerodynamic area you mentioned as well then the, the avionics and um the, the test bed uh, it's a surprise to me actually to learn that that was sort of part of the um, and maybe i i um, should have done some reading i should have read your book before we had this conversation but it's a surprise to learn that was part of the, the competition i always sort of assumed that um you know the low observability and the aerodynamic qualities of the airplane were one thing but then just like the engines the avionics would be maybe a different thing the air force might buy a platform and then integrate um avionics into it that it, it had selected separately um but but were you therefore working on common avionics with the same guys with you know the, the same avionics as the f20 yf22 team or were you building your own avionics capabilities no both companies built their own avionics systems and uh i i got involved in a lot of the simulations uh to determine what what is the effect of each one of the sensors is it, does the sensor buy its way onto the airplane is a sensor worth putting on the airplane from a weight and cost point of view so how far away should your radar detect another airplane? And uh, how many missiles do you carry and how do you effectively use them? So we get in, as pilots, we get involved in that aspect of the design. We, we've touched on computing power a lot in, in this conversation, relatively speaking. And um, one of the questions I'd asked you earlier was whether or not sort of test pilots, as you, as you were going through the, your experience as a test pilot, you were seeing sort of test pilots become more um, sort of, m- 
managers of computer systems and of, of avionics and that kind of stuff. But at that point in time, were you doing things like sensor fusion? Were you trying to simplify the job of the pilot to figure out what was in front of him or her or, or how to protect himself or, or how to go and kill the bad guy? Um, or, or were you still sort of in the the 90s sort of frame of mind where um you know you've got a radar warning receiver you've got a, a radar you've got a radio you've got esm whatever no that that was one of the first and foremost design criteria it was what we call carefree abandon the airplane must be able to take care of itself the pilot can do whatever he wants to do with the stick and throttle and he cannot damage or hurt the airplane in any way or the equipment so that's part of carefree abandon and the cockpit side, very strictly disciplined to provide you, the pilot, a picture of the situation around your airplane without knowing whether you need it, whether you're seeing it on the radar warning receiver or on the radar or a sensor, another sensor. We had what was called sensor fusion. You have sensors on the airplane that can see out around the airplane. And what you do is you take that information in from multiple sensors and put them into a single solution. There are two airplanes at your right two o'clock position, 47 miles X number of speed. That, that reduces the pilot to a, a tactician, not a systems operator. And that's very important when you're traveling at these high speeds and closing quickly on the enemy. And so, uh, yeah, that, that was uh, the big push was to use the avionics to simplify the pilot task. If I, I mean, I, I again, it's not something I, I know much about, as is evident in this conversation. But I remember sort of some pictures of the YR twenty three cockpit. It looked like you had an, uh, a heads up display from an F fifteen E and uh, maybe some um, MFDs from something like an F fifteen or, or an F eighteen, something like that. Um, were you doing things as granular as playing, as in you personally, as playing with color and playing with shapes? to represent those things on, on a display? Well, first of all, the, the prototypes had no, bore no resemblance to the production cockpit. Okay. They did just, in fact, it had a, a digital engine displays and that had just digital displays, but they were taken right off of F-15 and F-18, just as you said. So there was no attempt, uh, there was no radar, there were no sensors on the prototype airplanes. That's where we explored it in the flying test bed for all those things. We had, uh, we had a pilot's group of non-test pilots, but pilot's group that did the yeoman work in coming up with the displays and colors and enemy aircraft indicate the details of the, of the actual display were done by a group of pilots and pilot vehicle interface. PVI was the organization. So, so when did you first fly it? Uh, flight one, August 27th, 1990. And how was it? So, I mean, you've talked a lot about simulation. So did you, you knew what sort of speed it would unstick at, you knew what sort of speed, um, you know, it would take flight at, how how close to the simulation was it? Well, it was right on the money. In fact, uh, I I did a kick out of uh, thinking back on it. We we did the simulator. I must have done a thousand landings or more in the simulator, testing the flight controls for what was called power approach or the landing configuration. And the, the computers were not all as 
that we have today, but they were not bad. It had a visual of Edwards Air Force Base and the final approach into Edwards Air Force Base and fly that, fly it, and fly it, and fly it just many, many times. So the, the day of the first flight, I go fly and the airplane behaves just like it does. And it's time to land. I come back on landing and I have this funny feeling of deja vu on final approach here. I said, I've been here. I've been here a thousand times because it, it operated exactly like the simulator. No surprises. Are, are there parts then of the envelope that are, are easier to simulate than that? I mean, you talked about, uh, I think, did you call it laminar flows or, or some kind of flows that are difficult to, high angle of attack flight is difficult to simulate. So so as you progress through envelope expansion, did you start to find a, a sort of divergence between what was in the sim and what was in the real airplane? No, we didn't. The, the problem with the prototype program for both companies, we only had about 90 days to, to do it. And uh, we had very few flights. So the emphasis was on getting out to super cruise conditions so we could prove that it could super cruise. But that meant foregoing a lot of the detailed testing we would do at the lower and mid altitudes for a normal test program. So we, we I call it tunneling, we kind of tunneled out a portion of the flight envelope that got us up to 35, 40,000 feet where we could do some super cruise testing. And uh, we didn't go uh, down low altitude at high speed, high, high dynamic pressure. Uh, but we did go out to, uh, uh, well, we didn't, we did intend, here's another point. We intentionally did not go to Mach 2.0, not because it wouldn't go there. In fact, the number two airplane with a G engine could go quite a bit faster than that. Uh, it was just an engineering decision not to uh, go to Mach 2. But we didn't, we didn't go to the more risky areas, which are high dynamic pressure, low altitude, high speed, 800 knots. And we didn't go to the high angle attack, which I've already mentioned over on the left-hand side of the flight envelope. So it was, it was, a, it was an unrealistic un, uh, flight test program in that regard. The airplanes did, both airplanes did not get enough flight testing out of them that they should have gotten. The, the super cruise point, I, I wanted to ask, it might be, I'm not, not trying to be difficult, but it might sound like I am. But I understood that you know Super Cruise was a capability. For example, the F-15E had already. You know, BW-229 engines on an F-15E in mill power, it will go Mark 1.1, Mark 1.2, something like that. You know, it will Super Cruise quite comfortably. But but the Air Force had um, you know discouraged people from talking about that. So so was it really a surprise having you know you described the, the aerodynamics of the airplane and um, you know, the fact that it was built for speed. Was it really a surprise to find that it could do it? I mean, was it, so you're, you're, you're literally just doing it as a checkbox exercise rather than to determine a capability. Well, yeah, it, it, um, it meant we expected those speeds uh, and, uh, and so where there's no surprises to it. Um, uh, you check in the box, yes, but you also, what you're doing when you're out there, you're exposing the structure you're looking for flutter. Uh, you're looking for any, we had some problems initially with a shock wave standing over a, uh, uh, a vent and causing a flow interruption. So you're looking at detailed kinds of things with systems, hydraulic systems, is the temperature stay low on the hydraulic system and so on and so forth. Um, so it's just not a matter of going super cruise. You're, you're at a condition for you, all these systems of the airplane also are looked at. Can we explore that process a little bit then? So if you take the, the shockwave over the vent, so 
how do you troubleshoot that? Is that sort of rendering as some, um, you know, ambiguous or, or um, erroneous data or something, and then you land and somebody has to go to a wind tunnel or put it in the simulation and try and figure out what might cause it. And then you, I mean, what, what's the process of understanding what's actually happened? Um, well, it, it could vary all over the place. It, sometimes you you see uh, an eff uh, effect that uh, an engineer understands inherently what's wrong and goes and changes uh, something. Software in particular is, again, very amenable to changes. So sometimes the engineer will see, oh, yeah, that's happening, and I, I understand why. Other times, you know, if it's a pernicious type of uh, problem, yeah, you might go back to the wind tunnel and say, what's going on here, and do I see it in the wind tunnel? Um, high angle of attack is an area where the unknowns tend to rear their heads uh, and where you wind up having to sometimes go back. Well, you do go back and change the flight control system rarely, but sometimes you'll actually take it back into the wind tunnel. That's where the biggest unknowns lies, the left-hand side of the envelope. Well, from a pilot's point of view then, so are there, you, I think you've kind of touched this, but I, I'll ask, anyway but are there sort of certain flights where you're particularly careful um about your preparations uh where you're particularly cognizant that there are some risks um or there were more risks than maybe the last flight or there are more risks than there'll be in the next flight you know you you know, does you do not not does your approach change but does your you know mentally as you step and you walk towards the airplane are you thinking slightly differently based on what you're going to do well, actually, the uh, the test plan that outlines the entire test program actually has rankings or ratings on the programs. There are high-risk programs. There are low-risk uh, programs, flight points that you get. So high-risk, low-risk, medium-risk. And uh, there are mitigating procedures in there. What happens if we get this? Uh, what is our knock-it-off? If we're going out to a high-speed, low-altitude, and we're at 700 knots, and we see uh, something not quite right in the data, structural data, we stop, we come back, we analyze it, and then go back and try to push ourselves out a little bit further. So it's a, a like everything in flight tests, it's a very structured approach as to exactly how you test and what is the meaning of each one of the test points. Are they high risk? Are they low risk? So I, I think, and the mission control room as well as the pilot knows that as he walks to the airplane. So we're kind of mentally cocked to, hey, this is a risky day. Let's keep our eyes open for structural problems or whatever it happens to be. You, you, you talked uh, a little bit about, you know, some of the differences between the, the YF-23 and the YF-22. Um, you mentioned thrust vectoring. Was there, was there, a, well, what was the reason that, that thrust vectoring wasn't something that you would, uh, that you wanted to put on the airplane or you did put on the airplane? Um, NASA had a, well, the Air Force after Air Force had a test program with the F-15 uh, advanced technology fighter uh, technologies. And one of them was thrust reversing. Now, thrust reversing is different than thrust vectoring, but they, they looked at thrust reversing and decided that at 600 knots, throwing a thrust reverser open would take a huge structural strain on the airplane. And it really wasn't something that would make a difference in air combat. So they dropped the idea of thrust reversing. Um, thrust vectoring was looked at in, uh, what is it, the uh, uh, X-29? Mm -hmm. I, think, I think it's X-29. 
um, and use paddle blades to vector the thrust there. And that, that had certainly some neat effects at low, very low airspeeds. Uh, so the conclusion was is that thrust vectoring, if used, will be used at low speeds, not at high speeds. And, and in fact, that's what was designed into the uh, F-22 and YF-22. Uh, Northrop looked at the data and said, uh, I don't think that's as important as very low stealth. Getting in the turning fight and being able to outturn a guy at zero airspeed is less important than having a very low observable signature. So, and the companies were allowed to go those directions. They took their own independent solutions to the overall problem of what an advanced tactical fighter is. So that, that's what uh, was driving both designs, internal decision. That's a that's another interesting um, sort of conversational topic, isn't it? I think uh, around this time, I'm pretty sure the Russians had attended Paris. I think they were at Paris Air Show in '89. They crashed a MiG-20. Pugachev, uh, I think, crashed a MiG-29 there. Well, he didn't crash. He had he had a, he, t- he took a bird into the engine, didn't he? But anyway, um, but we knew, as in the West, knew about you know very high. Uh, high quality sort of angle of attack capabilities of things like the Su-27, MiG-29 um, and, and sort of their design philosophy around that. And then of course, through the nineties and, and so on, you, you you started seeing thrust vectoring arrive on, on sort of later versions of the, of the flanker. Um, your p- personal opinion then, um, having been through Vietnam, having seen the F-4 where they, you know, they took the gun out, they, you know, Deigned that uh, all air combat in the future was going to be air-to-air missiles, and you take the threat out beyond visual range, and there wasn't going to be any BFM. What was what was your personal opinion then as to the balance between getting a good low observable BFM? Um, uh, sorry, um, um, a BFR, a BVR capable fighter, and one that could also then, you know, t- turn and twist and fight in, in close range. Well, uh, the history of aviation is studded with cases where people could not give up on the old way of doing things. The U.S. Navy stayed with biplane fighters longer than the U.S. Air Force going to the monoplane. Um, I think uh, my personal opinion, air-to-air combat is today, with all aspect missiles, you're a fool to get yourself slow and start a turning fight. And the reason is because when you start a turning fight, you basically stop your airplane and the enemy's airplane in space. You're in a small, confined, turning fight. And somebody outside the fight can send a missile into that fight and kill you. Or you can shoot the guy off boresight with a missile. So the, the idea of having to classical dogfight, turn and burn, shooting with a gun, to me, is becoming obsolescent. But you will find the... Uh, Legends die a, a slow death, and you'll find that fighter pilots will still swear by God, I need that cannon on my airplane in case we get in a turning dogfight. But the reason that the F-4 missile-only approach was invalid in Vietnam is because the missile reliability was so poor. Hmm. Missile reliability has changed dramatically since Vietnam era. And so I think there's less emphasis on the needed on a gunfight. And along with that, to be a good gunfighter takes a lot of skill and practice and training to get lead angle, shoot and hit with a bullet, another airplane. Not so with a missile. It doesn't require a lot of training and and you can just shoot it and let the missile go flight the fight 
fly the flight towards the enemy aircraft. So my opinion is it's time for the uh, dogfight to slowly go away. And uh, it's not it's not to me a dominant or productive way of fighting uh, air warfare. This, uh, Paul, does, does ROE have any effect on that argument? Um, so, so if you think about you know, I know there's a te- there's a technical conversation about being ident- being able to identify whether or not somebody is is on your side, a neutral or or a, or a bad guy, right? I understand that, and so there's a conversation around capabilities in that space that we won't get into. But you know, politicians like to know that um, when they send people to war, they're not they're not going to kill people on the wrong side, right? So it, it does does ROE come into that then, which is that okay, well, you might have this all singing, all dancing capability to go out and reach out and kill the bad guy and and. Uh, uh, beyond visual range but actually a general might say to the president well we could make it so that they have to visually identify who they're going to shoot before they shoot them um so does that then negate the argument that that uh, there won't be close in um, encounters in the future or do actually you just develop different tactics which is your vid blow through 20 miles away and come back and then shoot him again or or technology can determine with a high degree of probability that that is in fact a bad person out there. That's a red fighter. Uh, and, and I think that underlies all this discussion we're having is technology has to be considered and not rely on the past. Oh my gosh, we had a friendly fire shoot down. We can never have a friendly fire shoot down. So don't ever shoot unless you can ID them visually. Well, maybe the technology allows you to ID them very high probability without seeing them. Hmm. And therefore, that relying on past performance and past uh, actions is obsolesced by improved avionics. And I think I I, personally, I see that happening a lot. Hmm. I mean, think about the accuracy of guided weapons we have nowadays. World War II, the CEP was 3000 feet for a, a bomb from the bomber streams. 3,000 feet. Today, we've all seen pictures of a bomb going through a window Hmm. or right into a building. So technology has allowed us to do that. We're not in World War II anymore, so we don't have to uh, carpet bomb the world to try to hit a moving truck. Technology allows us to do that. What was the the high point then of the program for you? Um, What did you most enjoy about Flying that airplane, you know, demonstrating its capabilities and 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 putting you know Northrop's best foot forward. Oh, again, it was such a short program. It just it, it felt like it was over with before we even started. Um, I I personally enjoyed the airplane. I thought it would have been a great choice. I, obviously, I'm prejudiced, but uh, every flight was a delight, and uh, mainly was working with the people. I had some really great engineers to work with, and uh, that—that's what. I, and I—I I think the same thing with the F twenty-two. I had some of the great engineers in the United States that I worked with, and that—that that gave a great amount of pleasure to the test program in both YF twenty-two and YF twenty-three, and in the F twenty-two. Thanks for tuning in to Temp Century. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe, and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks and take care.